This week on the show, we re-air a fan favorite from 2018, featuring Steve Albini in conversation with Devo's Jerry Casali. Enjoy. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Hey. Taisha Tyler. A tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the TalkHouse Podcast. Today, I'm joined from Chicago by... Josh Modell, Executive Editor. And we have a very, very cool show for you today. The one and only Steve Albini in conversation with Devo's Jerry Casali. Yeah, man, it's this is an incredible conversation that these two guys had. Uh, we recorded it backstage at the Desert Days Fest in Southern California, which is kind of this crazy psychedelic festival with bands like Tame Impala, King Gizzard, My Bloody Valentine. The lineup was incredible, and they had some psych heavy hitters. To that end, we also cut an episode there with Boogerines and Kikagaku Moyo. So listeners, that'll be coming soon. Now, Josh, when our intrepid reporter, Keenan Cush, came back from the fest and sent me the audio for this one, one thing that really made me smile was hearing Steve Albini say, maybe halfway through this talk, this is the sort of stuff no one ever talks about. These are the questions I've had for 30 years. Yeah, it's amazing. I don't think there are many bands that Steve Albini is going to go fanboy on, <laughs> uh, but Jerry Casale of Devo was one. And, and it turned into a great conversation. Steve asks really good questions. These guys really get deep into what they've done over the past 30, 40 years. These are two music legends who have lived it. These are guys who have defined the music of their time. I mean, I definitely first heard of Steve Albini when he produced Nirvana's In Utero. Yeah, and what struck me is that these two guys who have had very different careers have something really, really important in common, and that is they have sort of always followed their own path. Like, Albini is a take-no-shit producer and musician who has no interest in commercial success. And Devo was started as an art project in Ohio that happened to have a fluke hit in the early 80s with Whip It that sort of defined and undefined their career in a way. Exactly. Now, Devo was comprised of two sets of brothers. There's Jerry and Bob Casali, there's Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh, and there's Alan Myers. Devo are solidly in that category of what I call brilliant weirdos. These are guys who helped change the sound of mainstream music. Most recently, Jerry released It's All Devo. That was in 2016 and featured Jerry with Italy's Funk Investigation. Now, some exciting Devo news, listeners. They have been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2019. That's along with some amazing artists like Radiohead, The Cure, Janet Jackson, Stevie Nicks. And uh, you can actually vote for them. So, you know, if you think Jerry does a good job on today's episode, uh, you know, toss him a bone. (laughs) Yeah, they seem like a long shot. They could use your help. (laughs) Steve Albini, on the other hand, seems very unlikely to ever be nominated or inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, nor would he probably want to be. (laughs) He's sort of always set himself apart as very kind of anti-music industry, while also actually gaining probably the most fame for producing, although he hates the word producing, albums for Nirvana and the Pixies. He's also produced probably a thousand bands that none of us have ever heard of uh, at his studio in Chicago, Electrical Audio. It's an amazing place. I've gotten to check it out before. It's a fantastic recording studio. Uh, he's also, of course, the singer and guitarist of Big Black, uh, the classic noisy rock band, uh, and Shellac. And he and Jerry also spoke about uh, an interesting hobby of Steve's, right, Elia? Right. Now, this is really funny. Albini is not only a uh, world-renowned producer, as you say, he doesn't like the term, but that's what he is. He's also a world-renowned 
poker player and won one of the major categories this year in the World Series of Poker Tournament. This was over the summer in June. He took home over a $100,000 jackpot for seven-card stud wins. Yeah, it's amazing. And I thought one of the more interesting parts of this talk is that he says he plays poker only for the money and not because it's fun. Now, when I first moved to Chicago, I wrangled myself an invite to the Electrical Audio poker game, nice. uh, which he ran. And I've never seen a guy having more fun playing <laughs> poker, which may be because he was sitting at a table full of suckers and you know blasting ACDC and Thin Lizzy. He had his hand around your wallet already, Josh. Luckily, it was a very low stakes game. You know, everybody would buy in for $20 or something and then Steve would just take it all. I love it, man. That's awesome. Well, it was fantastic hearing him talk about what he considers to be the very different professions of poker playing and engineering records. We also get to hear the guys chop it up about the earliest years of Devo's existence and the political and social climate of the times. I loved hearing about Devo's complex relationship with Neil Young. Who knew? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, Neil Young has sort of become the godfather of punk and sort of worked his way into that. But at the time, like, Neil Young didn't seem particularly cool, right? Not to the mid-70s punks. We also hear about Brian Eno's proclivity for menage a trois. Yeah, which spins off from a story about David Bowie wanting to produce Devo, but not ending up doing it. Amazing stuff. And there are so many, many more stories here. Josh, should we roll the tape? Yeah, I'm excited to hear it again. All right. This is Gerald Casale. I never said that. Somebody said that about me. Somebody said I said that. You've always used Casale and not Casale. Well, Casale is Italian. Yeah. No, but I mean, when you were growing up. People, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I know, like, Stephen Colbert. He was Stephen Colbert when he was growing up, and right. then he changed it to Colbert, Colbert when he got to be famous. No, I mean, my family, you know, the relatives all called me Casale. After that, it got butchered 10 ways to hell. Sure, sure, that. yeah. Yeah. There was Casale. Mm -hmm. There was Casalis. They would have put an S on the end. I don't mm -hmm. know why. Casalis. There was Castle. They anglified it. Right. Um, your brother was in the band. Yes. With you. This is Steve Albini, by the way. I'm Steve Albini from Shellac of North America, sound recording engineer, musician, uh, born in Pasadena, California. I remember nothing about it. Grew up in <laughs> Montana. Is that enough? Sound check. I think over. Pasadena was a lot cooler, that is temperature-wise, when you were there as a youth. The only thing I know about Pasadena I learned this from my father who worked for various aerospace companies in California. And That's why you were there. He, he was getting a, the last of his degrees from Caltech and okay. then he stayed in the area working for various aerospace right. companies. He was aircraft among them. Um, but anyway, he told me that there was a promenade of palm trees that had these long beards on them. And whenever UCLA won an important football game, hooligans would set these long beards on fire. And so these palm fronds, flaming palm fronds would drift out over the city. And it sounded absolutely spectacular. It made me very <laughs> sad that I missed that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you know, I like it when uh, certain parts of society sanction mob rule <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's, it's an institution that's revered like football. There used to be a thing um, where there would be intense rivalries between different schools. Right. And then they would have, you know, for their homecoming game where they would play each other or whatever, it would be like a big 
fet. You know, they would make a, a bonfire yeah. and oh, yeah. burn effigies and all sure. that kind of stuff. Many Nobody fights. Does that too. Yeah, many but fights. But I mean, that that kind of thing now, it's reduced down to, you know, just like cheap beer at a, a bar or something right. like that. You know, like if you wear your Trojan's colors, you get a, right. a plate of wings or something, you know. Yeah. No, it's not, not as much of a bacchanalia. No, I mean, these days, maybe the SWAT team would show up. <laughs> Everything's so, clamped down, the clamp down. I listened to your talk earlier today. It's absolutely fascinating, every second of it. And one thing struck me about your position in Devo, the straddling quality of Devo, where it straddled the art world and the music world and straddled the the political world and the artistic world and the but the most significant straddle is that you broached the sort of great filter that was punk rock like i came of age during the punk rock right. era and right. my appreciation of music is 100% formed by my experiences through the lens of punk rock right and at the time that was seen as a clean break with the past. Right. That everything that happened prior to punk rock was jaded and loche and weak. And everything that was inspired by punk rock was the chariot carrying forward. Like the thing that we would all be riding from then on out was the inspiration of punk rock. Very, very, very few people and very few bands or institutions made it through that filter without it being an indulgence. And one of the rare ones was Neil Young. Like all of my right. punk friends, while they were quick to discard their Led Zeppelin and their right. Ted Nugent sure. material, right? They were quick to discard all of the baggage of the 70s. They identified with Neil Young. And I am fascinated by the sort of kinship that Neil Young had with Devo. So were we. <laughs> Who, yeah. Can you explain how you, like, as you mentioned in your talk, you were there, a participant during the Kent State right. shootings. Right. And so you were formed in the same social environment as Neil Young's most active and most vocal political period. Right. I should have been a hippie, but I wasn't. Yeah. Our attitude towards Neil Young was, we kind of jokingly referred to him as the grandfather of granola rock <laughs> but we knew even then that he was more primal more basic we liked the way he recorded we liked the uh the crude guitar solos yeah. and there was also even though he had that alto voice and sounded pretty there was a lot of anger in there and that's what we shared with anything from that era we also had very justifiable anger at illegitimate authority. We hated the prevailing administration. Mm -hmm. We hated the evangelicals. We hated authoritarian cops and teachers. Mm -hmm. Anybody that said, do as I say, as long as you live in this house. Right. right. So we were punk, like in the true sense of punk, which was punk was a fuck you to prevailing authority, mm. especially when it carried no kind of validity, you know? Yeah. Right? There are rules that you agree on, mm. but there were many rules, most rules, that you didn't. And now you were a lot younger than me. I think you're at least 14 years younger than me. Mm. And so you had that advantage, I think, of being a young teenager in punk's original blast, 
when punk was a salvo, almost like a course correction, like a market correction, right? It seemed like, and I've talked to other people who were there and, and whose aesthetic and whose ideals were formed in the same era as yeah. mine. And all of us who were there watching it unfold saw punk as a kind of a, an instant. Like there was a, yeah. a, a moment where everything changed. And it wasn't uh, a new idiom or a new form that we had to learn. It was basically, a, it was sort of a starting gun. Yeah. And everyone who was there and witnessed it was changed by it, you know. Yeah, it was great. It was back to square one. It was minimalism. It was do-it-yourself crude. And all of my punk friends identified with and appreciated Devo as having those ideas ahead of the curve, you know. Well, that's... That's true. See, that's why we were kind of ambivalent towards punk being older when we mm. created Devo. We were older than a lot of the punks. We were older than The Clash. We were older than The Sex Pistols. Not by much. But what we didn't like right away was this orthodoxy. And because we were in the mm. middle of it ourselves, and we got called punk because of the speeds we played at, because mm. of the sounds and the energy and the anger in the lyrics— but we were not part of the orthodoxy, which we found to be stultifying and anti-intellectual. You had to like dress a certain way. You had to act a certain way. As soon as we went to England in 1978, we encountered all the punks, and they were largely racist and right-wing white guys and very anti-intellectual. Hmm. And that's where Devo had to part ways with them. We were, our anger wasn't born of like resentment or inarticulateness or not understanding what was going on, I totally fucking understood what was going on. And <laughs> yeah. that's why I was pissed. And the temporal difference between the milieu that you guys were formed in the 70s and the late 70s, 80s, which is where my generation of musician came from, even speaking purely on a political basis... Yeah. There were reprehensible characters. You know, Nixon was a piece of shit. Oh, Johnson God. was a piece of shit. Oh like, a, a lot of people were reprehensible. But there was always some facet that sort of reclaimed their humanity for a moment. Like, mm -hmm. Nixon's mm -hmm. administration started the Environmental Protection Agency. And he's probably the only person who could have gotten an Environmental yeah. Protection Agency started. Uh, you know, uh, Sure, Johnson was principally responsible for escalating the Vietnam War. He also passed the Civil Rights Act, which right. was his, that was the accomplishment that he identified with most. So there were redeeming qualities or redeeming facets to even the most reprehensible public figures at that time. As I, I think as, that you make a really important point. Because, as near as I can tell, yeah. Ronald Reagan was the first pure piece of shit <laughs> to ever be a pinnacle public politician. Well, Everybody else, they had their failings, they had their things that you agreed with them and disagreed with them on. Primarily, they were motivated by, you know, rather base self-interest. But Ronald Reagan was the first guy that, where there was literally nothing about anything that he did that stands up to any scrutiny. Not a single idea, not a single notion that if you look at it with clear eyes, you could get behind. Well, yeah, you hit the nail on the head because up until that point, I'd say that even Devo, and I can only talk about collectively so much, but certainly speaking for myself, there was still this feeling, as you bring up, that 
there was still a system worth trying to save, mm. that there was still something that worked underneath the corrupt bad actors, and that there were bad apples spoiling the barrel, mm. right? But if you got rid of the bad apples, you had a chance. Yeah. And I quickly veered from that to, you know, the whole thing being rotten to the core. And that when you really quit just playing this WWF Republicans versus Democrats where the main difference was the color of the suit, that human nature itself and the political system that it reflected was beyond anything that could be fixed. Hmm. It was a cancer. And Reagan was the guy that finished it off because he was a complete huckster, yeah. a complete insincere con man actor. It was the first administration where you had the feeling that every single facet of government was being exploited to preserve the power of people who already had entrenched power. And it's why the ideologues to this day revere him. Yeah. And all Trump is, is the macho Camacho character from Idiocracy <laughs> yeah. version of Reagan, where strip away any of the false civility mm. and the silver-tongued grace mm. and just show the horrid, vile, mean-spirited guy, right? Mm. Take the mask off. Yeah, I think the political identity of the right wing right now is that. I think Donald Trump is just a purely craven, self-interested creep. Yeah. He represents the naked greed of someone yeah. who's always been rich, Yeah, wants to stay rich, wants to get richer, doesn't think rules apply to him, doesn't think his rich friends should have to follow the rules. And he says you that. Know? Yeah. He says it. And he goes, I like people that say nice things about me. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, why should I listen to somebody that's not rich? They're a loser. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you that I don't think that there are institutions left underneath that power grab no. that can defeat it. So no. it's going to take an extraordinary effort, and it's going to be an eradication effort rather than a conversion effort. There's no good outcome here for yeah. people of reason or <laughs> conscience. It's going to degenerate further into an uneducated, angry mob going against a power structure that's so concentrated and so over the top that what you'll see is kind of a police state, fascist rule. And this is kind of a distillation and, an, you know, the, the liquor of Devo, as you were describing it from its earliest inception. Do, we were do you, warning. Do you get any satisfaction from no. having been right? <laughs> no. I, I mean, thanks for asking that because people would think we would, like, ha-ha, I told you so, but yeah. this is... No one decent deserves this, yeah. what we're now living through, to have your face rubbed in shit every day, right? Orwell once said the future. <laughs> he said this in 1948 after he came out with um, Animal Farm. Somebody asked him, well, what do you see for the future? He said, the future is the boot coming down in the face of humanity over and over. And that's what we're seeing now, the consolidation of corporate control, the erosion of freedoms, of individual liberty, of, uh, of democratic rule of law. It's yeah. done. Well, that, that's all tremendously depressing. Yeah, and, so, yeah and, sure and, is. Uh, 
I, I do, I want to ask, you started out as an art project. Did you feel a kinship to the other, the sort of proto-punk and experimental and underground bands of, oh, the, yes. of the U.S. Yeah. at the time? I'm thinking specifically of bands like Paraboo yeah. and uh, the Electric Eels and yep. bands like MX-80 from Bloomington yep. and Dancing Cigarettes from Indianapolis yeah. and uh, th those sorts of bands. Did you correspond with them? Did you do trade shows with them? Did you... In some yeah. cases, we traded shows, and certainly Perubu over and over. And, you know, David, what was his name? David Thomas? Yeah. He hated us. <laughs> we liked him, but he hated us. He thought we were bullshit. Oh. And uh, it kind of, that kind of hurt, you know, because I was the last person to give a shit about all the assholes that hated Devo. Mm. That almost energized me. Like, right. The worse the people were that hated Devo, the more we wanted to do more, right. right? Like goad them and confront them. But when there's somebody you respect, especially from the artistic community, mm. and they say you're bullshit, that's not fun. And was there a scene for bands there like was, There was a scene in Cleveland. And, yeah, in Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. So there bands was, like um, The Waitresses yes. and uh, uh, Tin Huey and... Yeah. Uh, and did you, did you guys hang out? Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Even before that, when I was in the 1560-75 blues band, the numbers band run by Bob Kidney, which was locally and in Ohio quite famous, they really were good. Terry Hine was Chrissy Hine's older brother. Mm. He was a jazz musician who played saxophone in 1560-75 when I okay. played bass. Chrissy Hine would come around to our rehearsals down at the Cove in Kent, which was this subterranean club, perfect for what we were doing. Mm. All the students from the university came there. And she would demand to be let up on stage to sing and play harmonica <laughs> and fight with her brother who kept telling her to get out. We had to practice. And this would have been in what years? Like 1972, 73. My word. Yeah. Yeah. And then she'd hang out at the student union at Kent State University and pick verbal fights with people. She was always really aggressive. Like wow. he, at 14, 15 years old, she was really scary. <laughs> <laughs> and then she'd leave the rehearsal going, fuck you, you guys suck. <laughs> and two years later, she was off on her own going to, to hang out in London. And, uh, and we know the story from there. Yeah. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. So, like, now there's a fairly established circuit of venues, and there are, you know, booking agents and people like that who will organize tours, and there are a lot of bands that make their principal income touring. 
I can't imagine that there were a lot of sympathetic venues for no. what you were doing <laughs> in the no. mid-70s. How did you organize shows and how did you, you know? Uh, I would pretend to be the manager and in one one famous case, I lied that we were a cover band <laughs> and gave them a list of stuff that we did, including like Bad Company and <laughs> things like, you know, Foreigner. And then we get there and we're in the blue fireman's work suits with these clear plastic masks on that were just clear plastic with eyebrows and lips. Mm -hmm. And we come out that way and you can see this club owner going, what the fuck? <laughs> right? And we go, I go, here's one by Bad Company and we go into Be Stiff. Right, sure. And so after a few songs, the patrons are screaming at us and throwing mm -hmm. beer bottles at us. The club owner paid us to quit. <laughs> he said, here's 50 bucks if you'll get the fuck out of here. <laughs> And we thought that was great. Yeah. We took the 50, 50 bucks, bucks was and went to money then, yeah. Was we went to a pizza place, yeah. you know, raised pizza. And so, how did you transition from just playing shows and stuff into being like your first significant releases were on stiff records? Right, we had we had a year before that had that record out in the United States. Uh, we recorded it on four track. I drove down to Cincinnati to Queen City Records with Mark. We stayed overnight. We had it pressed there. Mm -hmm. We made uh, 2,000 copies there. Right. Which was ambitious at the time. I know. Well, they wouldn't do any less. Very optimistic, yeah. Wouldn't do any less. And then we we sat in uh, an apartment in Akron, and Mark and I had designed the original three-flap cover, mm -hmm. and we assembled it with double-stick tape. <laughs> And it took days and days to package these 2,000 yeah. records. The record-stuffing party became a rite of passage for oh, all the yeah. independent bands that were inspired by all the oh, early yeah. punk bands and independent bands. I, I participated in dozens of record-stuffing parties for my records and my friends' records and things like that. So there's this place in Cleveland called Videodrome that had all, all the independent singles and was bringing in the stuff from England. Mm. So I think we sold like, you know, 50 copies to them. Wow. All right. And then this guy, Greg, somebody from Bomp Records in California, uh, I had sent samples of it to my friends in California. They, they had got it to Bomp. Then hmm. he ordered like 200 copies. Wow. Then somehow Stiff Records got a hold of it. As an import. And they wanted 1,000 copies. Wow. I know. You're interviewing me, and I'm talking too much. We should interview you. Well, I'm, uh, let, I want to pursue yeah. this a little. This is the sort of stuff nobody ever talks about. This is all the stuff that I, the questions I've had for yeah, it's mushroomed. Years, so. It mushroomed yeah. like everything, right? If you're doing everything you can, right, everything you can think of doing every day, and then at a certain point, if you're lucky, you reach critical mass because there's a lot of bands and a lot of artists that they're not lazy. They do everything they can do. They try mm -hmm. hard, and in, they miss. Mm. They missed the bullseye. Yeah. We hit a sweet spot, and it started mushrooming. So Stiff Records, the, the label, right. the stuff that they were putting out, they put out some sort of stereotypical punk records, but a lot of the stuff that they became known for eventually was kind of rootsy, traditional, in right. a way, right. rock and roll music, which yeah. seems antithetical to the, right. what... Devo was about. Did right. you were you aware of Stiff Records and their reputation? Were you aware of their aesthetic before they said, "Hey, we want a bunch of your you records"? You know, our problem, in a way, it was a problem. We were such purists and thinking so far ahead that everybody we dealt with seemed stupid, and we <laughs> that we thought their aesthetics were cornball. We never met anyone we were impressed with, 
until we got to meet David Bowie and Brian Eno. Right. But as far as club owners and record guys, they were the worst people in the world. And the only thing I remember being concerned with from what I'd read was that Stiff would never pay us. And sure as fuck, they never did. <laughs> uh, that's, they, that's what they should have been notorious for, is I go, oh, okay, I get it why you're called Stiff Records, right, you fucks, right. you stiffed us. Yeah. And they laughed at me. Dave Robinson laughed at me. We never got paid. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. But it, it put us on this, like, underground stage that was getting a, a lot of press and a lot of heat. Yeah. And you, your first album came out in America on a major label. Right. And that record was made with some resources, as you were describing, like a couple of weeks at a very nice studio with Brian Eno. Brian Eno paid for you it. Know. Oh, he paid he for the paid record for up, it. up front. He and paid for it. That his idea was that he was going to make a record and then you would find a label or he had an, an He offer. knew that I had gotten us to the point where we had a right of first refusal deal with Warner Brothers where they laid out exactly what we'd get if they liked the record. But they wouldn't sign a deal with us until they had to hear the record first. <laughs> and the way they the way they sealed that right of first refusal was in order to get us to Germany, it was going to cost back then about 10 grand to send our equipment over there because, I mean, Devo's sound was based on all of our right. personalized, customized equipment. We weren't a plug-and-play band. Mm. And back then, to get your stuff into Germany, you had to have a carnet, you had to yeah. this and that. So to get us and, and our equipment over there was 10 grand. That's a lot of money then. Warner said, here's a check for 10 grand. If you sign this check, you're agreeing to this deal if we like it. Well, the deal was a good deal because I had kept turning down all these bad deals. Mm. But it was a production deal where we controlled the money so we could pick the studio, we could design creatively what we wanted, we could spend the money the way we wanted, unlike a lot of deals. Mm. And Brian, you know, saw that deal. So he knew what he'd get as a producer. So he said, you know, in order to we, for us not to wait any longer, here, it's going to cost like 40 grand. I'm going to pay. I know I'm going to get my money back. They're going to like this record. Wow, that's tremendous. <clears throat> and that's what happened. And there was something of a mild competition, I hear, between John Cale and Brian Eno. Uh, Bo Bowie. And David Bowie. Bowie. Bowie was going to produce us, but Bowie kept delaying and delaying and delaying, and then he, he had to, just a gigolo movie, and then right. and he kept pushing it. And I felt we were missing our big moment, our zeitgeist, because uh, the talking heads had released Blondie had released. You know, of course, The Clash and The Sex Pistols were out. Uh, B-52s were coming out. I felt, this is silly. We've been around in basements and clubs in Cleveland since 1974. We got to go. Mm. And I told David that. He goes, all right. You, I can understand why you're antsy. I'll tell you what. I'm going to fly you to New York. You're going to meet Brian Eno. Brian will do it when you want to do it. Uh, that is if you like him. Well, of course, you know, it's like he was one of our heroes. And mm -hmm. Mark and I spent two nights hanging out with Brian Eno in New York City. And the guy in Roxy Music with all the drag makeup on and the wings mm -hmm. and, the, and the glitter and the wild hairdo. And we meet him and he's like a balding, blonde, trimmed hair, little V-neck sweater and a preppy button-down collar shirt, corduroy pants. But, of course, he's staying at the Sherry Netherland. And, of course, he's got phone calls every five minutes with girls. 
And he starts telling us stories about how, you know, when he and David were working together, there'd be all these chances for menages, and David would say no. He only wanted the black girl. <laughs> and I remember Mark and I going, really? You mean David could have had a three-way? Wow, what was wrong with him? <laughs> like, were these goons from Ohio that never had any menages? And we couldn't understand why David Bowie would do this. And he goes, yeah, that's all he's interested in. And then Brian said, oh, and then David would gladly tell the girls, go with Brian. So he talked about how much he liked hanging out with David for, for that reason. <laughs> but he was really smart, really well-spoken, really smart. And by that time, he was that Zen guy with the oblique strategies cards. Right. And, and that was the only time you worked with him was on that first yeah. record. But you carried on making records for years. Yeah. It, well, at the time, he hadn't produced anything. I mean, other than his own stuff. Right. And when we were with him, of course, we were these industrial brutalists, minimalists. He kept trying to add pretty string sounds from a synth. He kept trying to do harmonies with vocals. Mm. And he, you know, he put all these tracks on the record. But when it came to mixing, Mark and I would pull down the faders mm. because it was antithetical to what we'd been do trying to do. That first record was and is a landmark. But did you consider doing more stuff with him or was it just, it just never materialized after that first Yeah, I session. don't think he liked working with us. And we we liked him personally, but we never maintained any professional relationship. We had a hard time with producers because we had all these innovative sounds and all these ideas, and they weren't, they couldn't get it. I mean, Bob Margoloff on the third record, it worked out great because we let him do what he wanted to do, and he was actually bringing out the funkiness of Devo and the the foot, the kick, and the bass interplay, mm -hmm. which had been missing on recordings, and he didn't mess with our sounds. He let us do our sounds. It's it's really interesting if you like listen to the sounds that you guys were making on those, like on those early the hardcore Devo recordings and the Stiff records and the the first album and, the, and your independent singles. Like a lot of those sounds, like the sort of brutish synthesizer sounds, noise, and the, and the uncultured kind of electronic percussion sounds and yep. that, that sort of stuff. Yep. Uh, an awful lot of that stuff was echoed years later in a lot of the more aggressive electronic music, which is now its own canon, you know? Yeah. And uh, But the, the music that you were making never seemed functional to me. A lot of that electronic music that I'm describing, industrial and post-industrial club music, a lot of it has these harsh sounds or these sort of unprettied sounds, but it seems to be done in service of a much more simplistic right. move. Like right. it seems to be done uh, as functional music where, right. well, this is a pattern you can dance to. Uh, we'll, we'll do this for quite some time, as opposed to it being like part of a phrase that you guys would do as a single gesture and then move on. Yeah, I guess we were just writing songs with our aesthetic. We were never dance music. I mean, mm. maybe at one point people thought we might be, but we never intentionally sat down and did dance music. We were not into that. And uh, I know you went off on a rant about dance music at one point, or EDM. I uh, read it. I read it. <laughs> yeah, funny. I just, I'm, I'm... But you would let the guy you sample you anyway. So, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that I've picked up from having worked with so many different kinds of people over a long period of time is that every kind of music has an element of legitimacy to it. Every kind of music, no matter how derivative or how 
slavishly mimicking that music is. There is a purity to it in, there's an element of sincerity there. And if the people executing it observe that, then it sounds valid to them. I know what you mean. And that becomes, that's really the only barometer. Yeah. Working in the studio as an engineer for other people, my taste and my aesthetics don't really come into the picture, or they shouldn't in any case. Like if I was working on a record with you, it wouldn't be fair to you if you had to be in the back of your mind thinking, I wonder if he thinks this is corny, you know? And <laughs> Unless it, we asked you. And it wouldn't be fair to you for me to be thinking, oh, that's corny. You know, it just, it's not a legitimate part of my function as an engineer to be like sculpting your music as far as taste is concerned. I feel like I've made yeah. better records. I've done a better job for more kinds of clients. The more I have quieted any sort of impulse toward authorship, you know, like you were describing that uh, your producer was putting extra stuff on your record. And then when it came time to mix it, you just kept those faders and down. And he didn't like that. I mean, it would save a lot more time if he just didn't do that, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I understand. And I mean, you're a thoughtful person and in, in an introspective, analytical person. So I think that's why you can have this eclectic discography of engineering production uh, that you have over all these years. It's insane how many different kinds of uh, music that you've produced and engineered, but you do it right. It's kind of like Josh Freeze with drumming. He's somehow avoided being a studio drummer, even though he is, <laughs> because whenever he's, a, he's like Woody Allen and Zelig, right? Right. When he is with Devo, he's Alan Myers. Yeah. And he's really got it authentically. And when he's with Nine Inch Nails, he's he's doing it. Yeah. And when he's with Sting, he's this pop guy. It's bizarre. Yeah. And he, the drumming styles are completely different. Then you see him with a perfect circle, and it's this you know drudge mudge and yeah. and uh, he's doing it. And you're watching him do it. And so each thing's authentic when he does it. You know. That's one of the curses of being an excellent drummer is that. There's a parallel here. I, I'm, it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm not bragging. I had a conversation with Jimmy Page once about being a studio musician. And he was, before Led Zeppelin um, got off the ground, he was a first call session musician right. in England. And he was known for being able to sight read any piece of music. And he, you know, he played effortlessly and played perfectly. And as he developed that reputation he started getting offered the more choice, the more sure. prime gigs. Like, so like starting out, he would be part of a rhythm section. And then uh, as he got a better reputation, maybe he would be the first call of an arranger to play in a combo. And then he would take the occasional solo, you know. And when he had a really great reputation as a reader, he was being offered the most lucrative gigs. And the most lucrative gigs were sight reading 30 minutes of Muzak for background recordings <laughs> as part of an orchestra. <laughs> that was the most lucrative gig for oh, a session back musician. Back then, right. Because they had to play an entire album side without stopping and making no mistakes, sight reading wow. a medley of popular and songs. And this is before the Yardbirds even? During that same era. Like, uh, so, Isn't that bizarre? I so didn't the, know that. The conundrum is... 
the better you are at your craft in that world of being a studio musician, the more bland yeah. and the less interesting right. the music is that you're going to be working on. And take as an example, a terrific drummer who makes his bones in a rock band or something like that, and he gets a reputation as being a drummer. So then, okay, well, then he's going to be a session guy for a singer-songwriter, and he distinguishes himself there. And then before you know it, he has a lifetime gig playing hi-hat and four-square bass drum behind Lyle Lovett or something, <laughs> or, you know, behind some pop singer. Right. Right. Doing nothing, right. of, none of the invigorating, sort of challenging, right. exciting. Actually, doing something work. that a bunch of drummers could do, but they want the name. They want the very best guy, so he's reliable, you know. Right. And that—that's the kind of curse of being an excellent session musician. Well, you would think that that would wean out of you the true talent, like you would kill it somehow by doing that. And but then you listen to Page when he's the last guy to be the lead guitarist in the in the Yardbirds. Yeah. And you already hear Led Zeppelin in in him. You already hear the style. You know, so he couldn't help it. He's got the style. Yeah. And you start to wonder like what was the calculus when he decided that he was going to be a band leader? Right. Was it like I'm going to make less money than I would have made playing music, but I the quality of my life and my creative satisfaction will be greater or did he have an instinct that it was actually going to end up being more lucrative? That's the kind of calculus I'm always yeah, curious about when you see, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't know because we never had that instinct. We just, we felt compelled to do what we had to do. It was just about, we were artists. We were visual artists first anyway. And we were, we couldn't not do this. This, we couldn't help but be original. We could have mm. never even had the choice of doing what Jimmy Page did. Yeah. Did Devo as a band, did you guys ever find yourself doing something that you later regretted as a kind of compromise? Because you, you worked in all levels of the industry from, you know, where you had to lie about being a cover band right. to get a gig at a bowling alley to where you're, you know, one of the major touring acts. Yeah. Well, not us label, collectively you know? regretting, not us collectively, but I have been quite plain spoken and vocal because that's me about the album Shout and how much I disliked what was going on when that album was being made. But it was like, basically, that's where Mark Mothersbaugh decided, okay, I don't really care what you think. If you, there's going to be a party, it's my party. This is what's going on. You can collaborate or not, you can leave, you know. And so it was, that, that he was, was an internal band Yeah, he issue. was married right. to the Fairlight. And I hated what the tediousness of the Fairlight and what, the sounds he was getting from the Fairlight. And it was disenfranchising Alan as a drummer. And he was really into his, you know, drum samples mm. and rather than us having real drums. And the music at that point, he had, everything he did was very busy. It was now pretending towards where he'd go when he scored kids' cartoons and kids' movies. Everything was real busy and chattery and caffeinated mm. and silly sounding, you know, like, a lot of tiny little sounds. But your, as far as your interface with the rest of the music business or the, your oh. audience or, or any, Oh, no, we never played ball. You, ne you, never felt, you never felt like you were forced to do anything. They tried. Yeah. I mean, right after, it was after Whip It. As soon as Whip It was a hit, you would have thought that would have like propelled us to the next level. But instead, 
Now they think they got it for the first time. That's Devo. Mm. Okay, we want another Whippet. And they couldn't believe it when they were hearing new songs that didn't sound like Freedom of Choice or Whippet mm. at all. And we were using different equipment because we were moving on. That was Devo, right? Mm. Devo was always very experimental and innovative. So it was like, we didn't want to do Freedom of Choice record again and with those sounds and mm-hmm. with that producer. We, we didn't even want to do that. So they were really freaked by that, you know, really disappointed in us. That's the, it's always been the paradox of the, the mainstream record business. It, you know, back when there was a record business, the paradox was always that something surprising would come out. It would take people by surprise and they'd be charmed by it and then it would become popular. And then the impulse of the record business was for some reason not let's have more surprises. No. But let's have more of the, of the, that of the thing that was just successful. Yeah. You know, that's a trap that sank a lot of boats back when there was a record business. Absolutely. So now, before we go, how did you get so good at poker? And <laughs> and is poker for you like winemaking for me where there's a relationship between you as a musician and, and producer with poker, but it's also freedom in another area? Um, I've been a serious poker player for sometime and I go to the World Series of Poker every year and I try really hard every year but you can't expect to win one of these tournaments because hundreds of people enter and you know cards have to go your way and you also have to make very few mistakes but winning a tournament is within the reach of any decent poker player I happened to win one this year which was great and very satisfying and you know Long story short, the money is really good, you know. When you win a tournament like that, you get a lot of money. And yeah. that's, that's you know, that's why you do it. Yeah. You know, poker might actually be the one thing in my life that I do for the money. In that if there wasn't money in it, I wouldn't do it. Got it. You know. But it's also a completely separate realm of my life. Like, none of the thinking that I use playing cards is applicable to any other part of okay. my life. Okay, that's what I was asking. When you're... When you're playing cards, a big part of your job is to be inscrutable. On a spectrum between inscrutable and deceptive. Right. You you don't want your opponents to know what you're thinking or why you're doing what you're doing, right? right? And in my normal day-to-day life, I don't want to behave that way. I'm not a fucking psychopath, you know? If you ask me a question and I answer it, I want you to have some confidence in my answer. You're real, yeah. And so the thinking that is required to play the game of poker is unique to that. So you get to be an actor. In a way, you're working within a certain sphere that has its own internal logic. And if you breach that sphere into another part of your life and use that same logic, it's going to it's going to be a terrible Yeah. Fit, you know, in in poker you're always trying to exploit right. mistakes that your opponents make. And in my personal life, if you make a mistake, I want you to correct that mistake. I want to help you get out of the situation. I don't want to put my foot on you. <laughs> right. I don't want to make it worse for you. You know, uh, so... So the, that's a big part of the game because I assume that anybody good, they all know the same calculus about what these combos they're going to get out mm-hmm. of these hands they're dealt and what to throw away and what to keep. Yeah. And what they can do mathematically to increase their chances. That's the skill. And then there's the luck, but now you're talking about acting. Well, there's a psychological element, yeah. which is 
it's overplayed a lot in the popular culture where, you know, like the big tough guy makes a big bluff on the river and yeah, everybody's yeah, yeah. terrified and throws their hands away, that sort of stuff. It, that's overplayed dramatically, but it is an element. Like there is an element of sort of coercive psychology in poker, which again, I don't want to manifest itself in my real life. Like I don't Got want it. to manipulate other people right. and I don't want other people to be trying to manipulate me. So, so you go, you sit down at this table in a tournament and it's an alternate reality for you. Yeah, I'm using parts of my brain that, that get no exercise yeah. in the rest of my life. And I, I feel like that is as different from the rest of my life as, you know, riding a horse is from shooting a shotgun. Like they're both completely different exercises. I know, I'm, I'm admiring it. I'm in awe of it because I'm a terrible gambler, so I don't gamble. <laughs> I loved playing blackjack in vegas and i would lose my ass every time yeah and watch my friend michael nash who's the senior vice president of universal music group win 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 because he's so into it well uh all poker players myself included would make a distinction between general gambling and poker in general gambling something like blackjack you can play correctly and still the house has an edge over you if you play forever you'll eventually go broke right? Um, or rolling the dice or playing roulette or any of these things. Where it's that, more chance. There is a statistical certainty that you will lose money if you play long enough. But poker is more skill. In poker, you can control the odds. Yeah. You can change the odds that you're offering your opponent by yeah. the value, the size yeah. of your bet or whether right. you choose to bet or not. You right. can change the odds that you're being offered by declining to play in certain situations or playing in certain yeah. situations. You know, by being aware of the odds you're being offered, you can tell when it's a good or bad proposition. In that sense, poker is much more of a game, a strategic game like chess, mm -hmm. than it is gambling. Like say, I think the Raiders are going to win. Right. <laughs> you know, right. or I, uh, I would very much like the number 32 to come up. Sure. You know, things like that. Sure. That's... That's stuff that's out of your control. You have no influence on the outcome. In poker, you have a pretty significant influence on the outcome a lot of the time. Yeah, even from what I knew about poker and watching it, I always thought it was truly, it was a game of skill. It's been a legal struggle for poker to be recognized as a game of skill. And that changes well, the way poker players have to behave. In some parts of the country, poker players you know, have to be underground. They can't be right. open or public about what they're right. doing because it's technically illegal. In other places, it's seen as just a, a, another normal pastime. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the distinction that poker players make between sort of general gambling and poker is embodied in their behavior as well. Very few poker players that are successful long-term are also degenerate gamblers in other areas. There are a lot of players who are degenerate gamblers who also <laughs> play poker. <laughs> and, and that is a significant fraction of the, of the population. But there are a lot of poker players like me. Like, I, I don't throw dice. I don't put money on any games of chance, Got pure it. chance. I don't bet on sports. I'm, I'm just not interested in gambling. And I, there are a lot of poker players like me. I knew by asking you that question that I would get an in-depth answer that would be <laughs> really enlightening. So, thanks. It even went beyond what I could have imagined. So you're, I, you're a thoughtful guy. I have one final question, then I, then I guess I can let you go. All one right. final question about Devo. When my friends and I were getting into punk rock, Devo became one of the most popular bands in the world on a mass appeal scale. 
the quirkiness of Devo, which and the oddity of Devo, which we all identified with, was used against us by the squares. Right. In that we were all called Devo mockingly yeah. by the squares. Did you experience being called Devo by somebody who didn't get Devo? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and I can't tell you how many back in the days when fans wrote fan letters and we would get hundreds and thousands of letters and then talk to fans after concerts. I can't tell you how many people said exactly what you said. And we understood it because it happened to us. Devo, the word, became a, an adjective or a noun in the culture, just synonymous mm. with being different, being disenfranchised, being an outsider of any kind. You know, if a kid cut his hair short or had blue highlights in his hair mm. or had glasses with red rims, we would be told over and over how he got chased or beat up or punched mm. and how guys jumped out of a car screaming, you're Devo, and, right. and, and slapped him around, you know, over and over and over. So I just think that while the whole punk movement have cert certainly appealed to uh, all the kids who felt left out of the preppy scene, mm. mainstream, it became easy once Devo became popular to lump it all together iconically into the one word. Yeah. It was just, you know, it's like saying Xerox. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You yeah. gave it a brand. Yeah. So, yeah, Devo became a, um, a badge of courage in a way because you were going to get threatened. You were going to get beat up. <laughs> that's it. That's a sour note to end on, but that's where we are. <laughs> Steve, Jerry, you may have ended on a sour note, but what a sweet conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Talk House. Hey, if you enjoyed hearing Jerry Casali talk, uh, he wrote an amazing piece for Talk House a couple of years ago about the band slash guy Tobacco. Headline, Tobacco is Addictive. <laughs> big, big thanks to Desert Days for having the Talk House out to your fantastic festival. And thanks to Talk House's Keenan Kush for recording today's conversation. Our producer is Mark Yoshizumi, and the TalkHouse podcast theme song is by The Range. Listeners, have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll be back the week after with Jabuki Young White in conversation with the drums, followed by fantastic episodes like Nico Case with Eric Bachman, Tierra Wack with Namdi Ogbenaya, and Tom Berlin with David Bazan. Till then, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Josh Modell. Peace. Enjoy your tofurkey. Peace.